Right. Good morning again. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation chapter 11. As we continue our, our slow walk through chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. Let's ask the Lord to lead us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this amazing visual, this picture, this parable, um, the spiritual symbolism, Father, that we see in this chapter that you give to us to remind us of the fact that you are sovereign and that you have a purpose and a plan for your church, your bride, that you have purposed, Lord, to set us apart, to make us holy as you are holy. And in so doing, Lord, you have a path that you have determined that your bride must walk. We thank you for this picture, Lord, and I ask that you would open our eyes to it this morning. We, we admit, Lord, that there would be no understanding of your word unless the Spirit of God would teach us and give us insight. So we ask that the, the Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth, Father, that you would apply your word where it's needed. We talked about your omniscience this morning. You know the needs of our heart, Father. You know the state of our spiritual condition. You know if we are pretenders who sit here or if we are true possessors of the Spirit of God. And we ask, Father, if there are any here this morning who do not know you, have not been born again by the Spirit of God, that you would do that work and that you would use the preaching, the foolishness of preaching to redeem your people. We thank you for this time we have together this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So last week we looked at verse three. Previous weeks, um, we looked at verses one and two. And just a quick reminder of what we studied. In verse 3 last week, we're looking at the scenes or the picture, multiple pictures, if you will, in the interlude, which is what Scripture shows us between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. There is an interlude, a pause, if you will, a break in the action, and we get to see these repeated scenes that look at the, at the onset like they're pictures of different things, but in reality, as we study them, they're just different glimpses of the same thing from a different angle. We looked at verses one and two, which is um, John being told to measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship. And then after that, we look at verse three, which um, gives us a, another take. And really, it's the same thing. It's a continuing of a thought, but just from a different angle. and. It talks about the two witnesses. Verse 3 says, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. So how do we know? How do we know that this is the same thought being continued or carried on? Well, if you look at verses 1 and 2, John is told that the outer court is to be left out of the measurement, it's to be given over to the nations, and it will be trampled for 42 months. Then, 
after he's told that the outer court will be trampled for 42 months, the two witnesses will prophesy for 1260 days. Guess how long that is in terms of months? 42 months. So what is scripture doing? It's connecting the dots for us. And it's showing us that it's a continuation of the same thought. So last week we looked at this. The two witnesses are the prophesying bride of Christ. And we spent a great deal of time showing that. There's an important picture that's being given here with the with the picture of the two witnesses. Why the two witnesses? Well, the two witnesses are incredibly important because God has established early on in Scripture that it is the two witnesses testifying of a fact that ultimately um, is to convict of crime. We looked at the fact that in the Old Testament, there are some 16 crimes that are punishable by death. But the, the caveat to that is, is it takes two witnesses to establish the guilt. So what is the picture here? The picture is very clear. There are two witnesses testifying of the capital offense of the world. And who is doing that testifying? It is the bride of Christ, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. God has granted his church, his bride, power and authority, the keys of the kingdom, if you will. How does he do this? Through the regenerating power of his indwelling spirit. And he gives us what we need to faithfully proclaim the mind of God. We talked about what this what this prophecy was, and it's very simply this. It is declaring the mind of God. When people talk about prophecy, typically our minds go to thinking about some new thing that we've got to give a word about. No. Prophecy, the, the meaning of the word, is to declare the mind of God. It's not declaring my mind or what I think about something. It's declaring God's mind. We called this the dynamic duo. And the dynamic duo's prophetic declaration is to warn the earth dweller of their capital offense. That is, that they are under a death penalty. This is not a popular message. But if we truly love those around us, we love our enemies, as scripture commands us to do. What, what is the net result of that? We love them enough to tell them the truth. And the truth is that if we die in our sins, we do not repent, we do not turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, we will perish eternally. That's the truth. And it's not a message that will be well received as we look in verse 7 and beyond and Next week, Lord willing, we'll we'll look at verses um, 7 through 10, and we see the response of the world, and it's completely predictable. God is telling the church how the world is going to respond to the message of the warning. But the, we, we also looked at the prophetic message, the declaration of the mind of God, and then the connection of the 42 weeks and the three and a half years. And the fact that um, the church, the bride of Christ, is clothed in sackcloth while she is declaring the mind of God. What is that picture? When we look at the picture in scripture of, of sackcloth, it is a picture of what? Mourning. Mourning. Repentance. 
whenever we see in scripture, there's a visual connection with being clothed in sackcloth and ashes. Why? It's a picture of humility. So the church, as she is testifying and witnessing and warning the world of the death penalty, is in mourning herself as she awaits the bridegroom. That's the posture that God has called the church to take in warning. It's not a picture of arrogance. It's not a picture of judgmentalism. The reality of it is, is God has already judged sin, has he not? We're declaring the mind of God. I'm not determining what is and isn't sin. That's the height of arrogance, by the way. And we get into these great debates in the church about, well, what is sin? What isn't sin? God says this is a sin. God doesn't say this is a sin. Scripture's clear. And so the church, if she's doing what she's supposed to be doing, is declaring the revealed mind of God. We're not, we are not, uh, as we talked about in Bible study this morning, we're not inventing new rules as in legalism, but we're declaring the mind of God. So we pick up, um, we pick up in verse four. Now, verse four takes us back to the original question that we talked about last week, which is who are the two witnesses? We labored to answer that question, but verse four piles on. It's going to give us a further perspective on who the two witnesses are. As I said, God gives us multiple pictures, so we'll get his truth. So verse four, these are, referring back to the two witnesses, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, as I said last week, there's tons of conjecture about what the two witnesses are or who they are. Some say Elijah, some say Moses, and um Lots and lots of conjecture. And if you read multiple commentaries, you'll get multiple answers. How do we interpret scripture? We interpret scripture with scripture. So turn to Zechariah chapter four. Zechariah chapter four. Now, while you're turning there, I want to ask you a question because it wasn't terribly long ago that we first were introduced to the symbol or the picture of lampstands in the book of Revelation. Remember where that was. So while you're turning to Zechariah chapter 4, let me read you two verses from Revelation chapter 1. Been a little bit of time since we were there, but Revelation chapter 1 verse 12, and I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, meaning the Lord Jesus, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. What are the golden lampstands? Well, verse 20 tells us, and as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the, are the angels or messengers of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are what? The seven churches. Remember, we, we had uh, spent a lot of time examining the letters to each of the seven churches, real churches in Asia Minor, and and Scripture interprets that symbol, that picture, if you will, of who the lampstands are representative of. So with that in mind, I want to turn to Zechariah chapter 4, give you just a little bit of context for this passage in Zechariah 4. 
Zachariah will, will be given a vision in which he sees a new lampstand. And I want to read just a blurb from Table Talk from April 16th that, that kind of sets the table, no pun intended, for Zechariah and, and what's going on in that context. So despite its importance says the first structure wherein God made his presence manifest among the people of Israel, the tabernacle was only a temporary dwelling that King Solomon later replaced with the temple. Find that in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Solomon's temple, however, stood only about 400 years, being destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC. At that point, the vessels used in the temple, according to the including the golden lampstand, were also carried off to Babylon. That's in 2 Kings chapter 24. We just just getting ready and, and ramping up our study in 2 Kings. In chapter 24 of 2 Kings, we find the uh the initial Babylonian captivity. It continues, we could by no means overestimate the importance of the exile to redemptive history, nor could we overestimate the joy that people felt when in 538 BC, God appointed King Cyrus of Persia to return his people to their land. Once in the land, the nation began rebuilding the temple and its furniture, including the lampstand first mentioned in Exodus chapter 25. Zechariah, the prophet, was commissioned during this restoration period to encourage the returned exiles to complete the rebuilding of the temple, which had run into difficulties because of Israel's lack of faithfulness and their opposition from neighboring peoples. The immensity, think of this, the immensity of the task and the paltry resources of the Israelites did not help, and the people despaired over the inglorious nature of the kingdom. Yet the Lord's determination to build his temple was not thwarted, which is one of the main points of today's passage. Zechariah's vision of a new lampstand meant that God would certainly build his house. For the lampstand would be useless without the temple. Though the restoration was troubled, it was a day of meager beginnings. Israel would one day rejoice in fullness. So a little bit of the history there of what we have in Zechariah as we get to Zechariah chapter 4. So let's read there, Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. And the angel who talked, to, talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I, that is Zacharias, said, I see and behold a lampstand of all gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Now, for context, Zerubbabel is, is the king or the leader. The other main key player is Joshua, the high priest. Not the same Joshua, son of Nun, but Joshua, the high priest. Joshua, Zerubbabel, Zechariah, Nehemiah, Hosea were all contemporaries of what is going on in Israel at this point in time. 
And as the Lord is giving Zechariah this vision to encourage the people, he says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundations of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven eyes are the eyes of the Lord, which range throughout the whole earth. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right hand and on the left of the lampstand? And the second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? And he said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Sound familiar? Revelation 11 is directly taking us back to Zechariah chapter 4. And the picture, the context, we set the table with this. Israel has this amazingly daunting task in front of them. They have to rebuild the temple. So the question is, who is building the temple? Well, Zerubbabel is charged with the task. And... It, it points us to something in verse six, where it says, who are you, O great mountain? When you read the, the book of Nehemiah, as they're rebuilding Jerusalem and rebuilding the wall and also rebuilding the temple, it's been, it's been destroyed. Babylonians left it desolate. And Nehemiah is both building and protecting and preaching all at the same time. In fact, the picture is he's got a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. How efficient is that to do work when you're trying to watch your back because you've got enemies attacking you and you're trying to build? It's hard enough as it is to build, but when you're watching your back because the enemy is assailing you, it's an overwhelming task. It's an overwhelming obstacle. It is mountainous. And so Israel was discouraged. And God reminds them not to despise the day of small things and not to get impatient because the temple is to be built out one stone at a time. And God reminds them that the progress may be slow, but that he will see the work through to its completion. So what of this golden candlestick that that, that uh, Zachariah sees? Well, he he directly links it back to the two anointed ones that we see in Revelation chapter 11. And the picture is, here's this candlestick. And, and flanking the candlestick are two olive trees. And coming out of the olive trees are these two flutes, if you will, or these two branches that serve and feed the seven golden candlesticks. Now. That 
that feeding, if you will, of the, of the golden candlesticks is supplying the golden candlestick with oil. The oil is a picture of what? Yes, the Holy Spirit. So comparing scripture with scripture again, the golden candlestick is that of the tested or refined church. If you read 1 Peter chapter 1, and by the way, Revelation 1.20 tells us that the picture of the candlestick is the seven churches. It's a picture of the, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.7 says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How does gold become refined? Fire. Does that hurt? Is that painful? Is it comfortable? No. But it is nonetheless what God has ordained for the purification of the church. And with this bowl that we see are seven lamps or seven cups. And that is where the reception, if you will, of the oil comes in that serves the wicks in the lamps. But I want you to see something. The candlestick itself is not the lamp or the light. What is? In Revelation chapter 1. And this is, again, alluding back to Zechariah, verse 4. John says to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. In Revelation 4, 5, it gives us another picture of the Holy Spirit when it says, from the throne came flashes of lightning Rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which, what, are the seven spirits of God. So here is the picture. The church is the candlestick. But what makes the candlestick work? You can have a candlestick all day long, and if there is nothing to feed it, we talked about the a seity of God this morning, his, his apartedness, if you will, his otherness, how he does not need anything. Church is in the exact opposite respect, though, isn't it? Candlestick is not the lamp or the light. We're merely holders of the light. The light, the candles, the torch. The olive oil, if you will, the trees represent the empowering spirit of God. This is the picture that God has given to Zechariah and Zerubbabel. How is God going to build his house? Through your mighty work and your mighty efforts? The correct answer is no. Now, it's not to say that there is not to be a great deal of work to be done. And Israel labored to rebuild the walls. And Israel labored to build the temple. Ministry is work. But it is not our ministry that builds the body of Christ. God uses it. But he is the one that builds. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but what? By my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Speaking of light, and we talked about this in Bible study this morning. Thank you, Jesse. 
John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Then Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, talking about the character of the Christians submitted to the kingdom of Christ, says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it, put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So how is it that Jesus says, I am the light of the world in John, and then in Matthew he says, you are the light of the world? Is that a contradiction of Scripture? No, it's an elaboration of Scripture. Why does the church give light? Flex. Yes. We talked about light is the glory of God. The church does not generate its own glory. We are the glory of God. The church giving light is a reflection of God's glory. And how is the church to give light? He says it. He said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What are the good works of the church? Holiness. It is the submission or the obedience to God, his word, his law. This is not what we call in our modern day terminology as virtue signaling, where people get on social media and brag about what they've done. No, what is, what is glorifying God and giving light in a dark world? It is the obedient child of God. And what are we obedient to? We're obedient to his word. The submitted child of God radiates the glory of God. And let me tell you this, the darker the world gets, the brighter the light. The two witnesses are the church. And the bride is empowered by the spirit of God to carry out its mission. In verse 7 that we will get to um, next week, it says, And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. We'll talk about that in detail next week, but what is the implication? The implication is, is that the church finishes what God gives it to do. The bride is empowered to carry out its mission. And God uses the small things to do that. Why? Because God is pleased to glorify himself in small things. What do I mean by that? Well, what do we do every week? We come together, we sing, we pray, we come to the Lord's table. On occasion, we baptize. But all of that is around what? The simple teaching and preaching of God's word. Nothing fancy, nothing showy. Why? Because God is pleased to work through small things. The scripture says he is, he is um, 
He is pleased through the what? The foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. The small things. And as Israel was was uh, worried and, and discouraged over the lack of progress with the rebuilding of the temple, God's house, God says, don't worry about it. I'm building my house. It'll be my spirit that accomplishes it. And nothing that gets in the way. The church is going to be assailed at every step of the way. And that can be discouraging to us sometimes. We think there's little progress being made. Sometimes it looks like progress is reversed. But what can stop the the kingdom of God from growing? Nothing. In fact, when you read the parables and Jesus is preaching about the kingdom, he often talks about small things turning into great things, doesn't he? Remember the parable of the mustard seed? The widow's might? God is pleased to take the small things, the faithful teaching and preaching of his word. If you're a parent and you have children and you're discouraged with what seems to be at the onset, a lack of spiritual progress. Be encouraged. Faithfully teaching and sharing the gospel with them by the grace of God will bring forth fruit. Don't be discouraged. So what is the implication of this truth for us? Well, the question that has to come to mind if you haven't asked it yourself is what what about my life My manner of living is shining light in a dark world. It's a question that we have to ask ourselves. The answer from the text that we're looking at this morning is it is the Holy Spirit that empowers the church to shine. If you are trying to shine on your own, you're a legalist. A legalist is trying to shine on his own. That is the virtue signaling. That is the Pharisee. Look at me, everybody. But if the church is is doing what God has called it to do, it is doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And a practical question comes up, how does God do this in our lives? In John chapter 16, verse 12, Jesus talking to his disciples said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. And he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus speaking of the specific work of the Holy Spirit in empowering and teaching his disciples by implication, you and I, as to what God has in store for us and what he intends to do with us. In Revelation chapter 10, remember we looked at the picture of the mighty angel who stood with one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. And at the end of that chapter, John says this, the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again saying, go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and I told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. Seemingly odd statement to make. 
And the angel says to John, it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth, it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So the answer to the question with how does God accomplish this in our lives it's through the Holy Spirit's illumination of God's written word and our obedience to it. That's how God is pleased to glorify himself in the life of the church. In John's case, it was a, a good visual example. God said, you are to go prophesy. But before you go prophesy, I want you to do what? Eat my word. What is the picture there? Take it for yourself. I have nothing to say to a lost world if, if God's word doesn't mean anything to me. If it is no value, if I have not taken it for myself, I have nothing to share. Remember that the calling of the church is to be a witness. What is a witness? It's a declaration of what I have seen and heard. So how does this apply to us? Well, the question, the question that we need to ask. There's lots of questions that we need to ask, but in this regard, very simple one. Does the Spirit of God indwell you? Have you been born again? Say, well, I've made a profession. I've written a date down in my Bible. I know it's as good as gold, therefore. Um, I come to church regularly. I read my Bible. How do I know if I'm born again? Jesus told Nicodemus, who was a religious leader of Israel, you must be born again. Why did Jesus tell Nicodemus he must be born again? Because Nicodemus wasn't born again. He needed to be born again. Nicodemus had lots of things going for him, including the, accolade, the accolades and the recognition of his fellow Israelites who saw him as a teacher. And a revered teacher, and yet he was spiritually dead. Jesus said, you must be born again to both see and enter the kingdom of heaven. Titus 3, 5 says this, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, which means to be born again, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So how do I know? How do I know if the Spirit of God indwells me? Talk about our children and how we can understand or know that they're born again, that they're regenerate. Children sometimes have a hard time standing up and giving a doctrinal dissertation on the definition of regeneration and its implications. But the Lord saves children, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. So how do we know? How do we know? Well, Scripture doesn't leave us in the dark. But do I have to have an experience like John? Do I have to have a heavenly vision? Do I have to have performed miracles? We talked about this last week. A miracle is God accomplishing his will outside of the use of ordinary means. There are some who want to validate their 
salvation, their spirituality, if they will, by something magnificent that they can do. Well, here's the problem. God has already validated his message. Amen. It's validated. There's nothing left to do with God's word but to proclaim it and to obey it. I do not have to validate this by mighty miracles. Why? Because it's already been validated. What's left for me to do? To witness about it. I will tell you this. If you have been born again to the spirit of God, you are a firsthand witness of the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ. You are a witness. The disciples witnessed to the fact that Jesus was resurrected, died, buried three days in the grave, and rose on the third day, and they witnessed his resurrection. They saw him after. They had lunch with him. We talked about or breakfast, brunch on the beach. They ate with him. They saw him. They talked to him after he was dead and buried. And that witness in their lives was so powerful. They were so sure that they served the resurrected Christ that they died for it. Every every, um, criticism of God's word neglects the very fact that the men who testified to its veracity saw the Lord Jesus and they didn't recant. Peter recanted before he saw Jesus die be buried and resurrected, but not after. They knew who they were serving and they died for it. They were that sure. But if you've been born again by the spirit of God and the spirit of God indwells you, you have been risen or made alive from the dead. This is not making a profession of faith. This is God taking a dead sinner and giving him or her life. So that they can obey and believe. And God has called the church to witness what they have seen and heard. But how do I know that the spirit of God involves me? Can I know that? One of the the big struggles that we as Christians face. And I say, yes, as Christians, we face doubts about our salvation. Have you ever been there? Not you guys. It's those other Christians out there. How do I know? First John 3.24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, in God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. You see the correlation there. When he has given us his spirit, he gives us what? A desire, a motivation to obey him. It's not out of compulsion. In Ezekiel 36, we read, he takes the what? The heart of stone out and gives us a heart of flesh. And our desire then becomes to obey him. The proof that you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, that his spirit dwells in you, and that you abide in him is your desire to obey him. Does that mean you've you've stopped sinning and you never disobey? No. You guys have heard me use many times the illustration of the sheep and the pig in the mud hole. You guys have seen it firsthand now. There's a new relationship to sin. When God saves us, when he gives us a new heart, it grieves us when we sin. We can't be happy in it. 
We're miserable in it. We're like the pig, the unbeliever who runs and dives into the mud hole and, and does backstrokes and lathers around in it and is happy. That's how we were in our unregenerate state. But a lamb, a sheep does not belong in the mud hole. They're not happy there. That is the change of nature that we see God make in regenerating his people. And he says, whoever keeps his commandment abides in God. That does not mean our righteousness is established by the keeping of the law. That's not what John's saying. John is saying that Christians obey. People that obey God are Christians because of the new life that is in them. 1 John 14, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. That's how you know that you belong to him, is that he has given us his spirit. Well, does that mean that we do all sorts of cool miracles? Well, it's it's a good question. How do I know that I'm living according to the spirit of God? Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. For the believer, how do I know that I am in step with the Spirit, that the Spirit of God indwells me? Well, Paul gives us proof in Galatians 5. He says in Galatians 5, verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. When he says walk, it means your manner of life, how you conduct yourself. Walk by the Spirit, conduct your life in accordance with the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. Now, he's talking to the believer here. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The, the, the believer still wrestles with the flesh. Say, well, how do you know that? Well, when was the last time you sinned? When was the last time you asked the Lord to forgive you for said sin? For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Why do you want to do right? Because the spirit that indwells you. But look, look at verse 8. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. If you are led, it means to be carried along brought, driven like a hitched wagon. You say, well, how do I know I'm led by the Spirit of God? Well, Paul gives us negative evidence that we are not, first of all. He gives us negative evidence and then positive evidence. Negative evidence, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality. The word there is the, is the Greek word pornea. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. The word sorcery there is pharmakia. We get the, the word in the Greek for pharmacy. Um, the picture is being controlled by drugs. Interesting that it ties it to sorcery or witchcraft, though. But he continues, enmity, strife, jealousy, 
fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, if you will, reveling, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If sin, any of the sin here mentioned, defines your life, you're in trouble. Does any of that apply to us? If the works of the flesh are evident in our lives, and all of these things are are pictures of rebellion, disobedience, the essence of the life of the Christian is what? Submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Can you say and mean it that Jesus is Lord? If you can, then you belong to him. But all of these works of the flesh are me saying, I don't have anyone over me. I have no Lord. I am my own. Verse 22 is the positive evidence. And by the way, Paul says this, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's a picture of kingship here, isn't it? You don't belong in the kingdom because you are not submitted to the rule and the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what Paul is saying. But the positive evidence that you are led by the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. Against such things, there is no law. Now, when Paul talks about you're not under the law, he's he's talking about the fact that the believer is not under the condemnation of it. But we're still obligated to obey it, are we not? Is it a not is it not a violation of the law to be gen, to be jealous, to be envious, to commit sexual immorality, to be divisive, to be drunk? Those are all violations of God's law. We're obligated to obey it. We talked about man's obligation to his creator this morning. But the positive evidence of the fruit of the spirit, there is no law against. And notice one of those things is self-control. Look at the look at the picture that both of these are painting, the negative evidence and the positive evidence. Who is controlling who? The one who is ruled by the, the flesh. Is, is not submitting to the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no evidence there of the fruit of the Spirit. But the one who is, is marked by his or her self-control. We're subjected. We have submitted to the rule and the reign of Christ. If a person is bristling against authority constantly, that should be a warning sign. If our children do not want to obey mom and dad, And bristle at it. It should be a warning sign. It should be a flashing neon sign that they have not been born again of the Spirit of God. Because if we will not obey those authorities that God has placed over us, we're not obeying Him. It's little wonder why we're trying to redefine men and women's roles. Because we don't want the yoke on us. 
And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live, listen to this, if we live or are alive by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. What does it mean to keep in step with the Spirit? The picture in the Greek, stoikeo is the Greek word. It means to be in rows, to march in order. Right? There's a, a very vivid picture here. If we are keeping in step with the Spirit of God, we are marching with the Spirit. We're not doing our own thing. The picture is of being yoked together. And we've talked about the, the negative uh, impact of yoking two different animals. The scripture says, Do not be yoked to an unbeliever. Why? Why? We're not in step. We're, we're at two different cadences. And the picture here is that the spirit of God has his cadence that he is guiding and directing the believer. And we are in step with that. We're marching to his beat, if you will. Another way of putting it. If we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So the question is, are we walking by the Spirit? Well, how do I answer that? Well, Paul just answered that for us. If the flesh is dominating our lives and sin defines us, that's a, it's a terrifying thing when we define ourselves by our sin. That's what our culture does. There is no such thing as a homosexual Christian. There is no such thing as a stealing Christian. There is no such thing as, a, as an adulterating Christian, adultering Christian. It doesn't, it doesn't match up. We don't define ourselves by our sin. We define ourselves. We have a new identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we walking by the Spirit? Is our manner of life or way of living empowered by the Spirit of God? Are we dependent? And living in step under control, submitted to walking by faith and obedience to his word. That's how we know we belong to him. Our parents telling us we're Christians, our life of service in the church, it's not the evidence that Paul gives. You must be born again. Verse uh, four, the second part of verse four it says that the two witnesses that stand before the Lord of the earth, that stand before the Lord of the earth. The idea here, the picture here is the, uh, the, the omniscience, the omnipresence, if you will, of the Lord. He sees everything. We looked at Hebrews chapter four, I believe it was. There is nothing that is not exposed to the eyes of God. He sees all of it. These two witnesses stand before the Lord of the earth. That is, the Lord sees his people. He sees his church. It is to live, as we say in the Latin quorum Deo, before the face of God. To live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. In Romans or Revelation 5, 6, we see the omnipresence of the Spirit. Zechariah alludes to the same thing, the seven eyes, if you will. What is that a picture of? God's complete ability to see everything and everywhere. 
in, in Revelation 5, 6, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw the lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. What was it? Psalm 134 we looked at this morning, brother. <clears throat> Knew I was close. Psalm 139. Where can I go to get away from God? Where? And the wicked would love to think that hell is going to be a separation where they, they will not, not know the presence of God. But even there, David says, they will know it. Here's the point of encouragement for the church. Because as we are, we are seeing the fact that God indwells the church, he is pleased to fellowship with the church. He empowers the church. As we're going to see next week, that's important because what is coming for the church and what has been here for the church is tribulation, persecution, affliction. And the picture here that God is giving us is I see it all and I am with you in it and through it. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, Jesus tells his disciples, and by the way, the natural response when I talk about persecution and affliction and tribulation is what? Anxiety. What does that mean for me? What is tomorrow going to bring? And Jesus addresses that in Matthew 6. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, that what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? It's one thing to say that God is omniscient and omnipresent. It's another thing to say he intimately knows me and he sees me. Your heavenly father knows, verse 32, that you need all these things. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Trust the Lord for today, and he's got tomorrow. Just thinking about, and I, when I study, I listen to music, and as I'm looking at this very text, this song comes on. So I had to share it. His eye is on the sparrow. Mm -hmm. Why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart be lonely and long for heaven and home when Jesus is my portion? My constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow. And I know he watches me. It's one thing to say his eye is on the sparrow. That's good theology. But applied theology is saying, I know he watches me. Verse 5, and I promise I'm almost done. Verse 5. Verse 5 and 6. We're going to take both verses at one time and make a couple applications before we close up. If anyone would harm them, Fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. 
Now, I want you to think about this. Before you go out and you start zapping people with your miraculous power. Is that what's pictured here? No, this takes us back to the first four trumpets and the first four horsemen. Temporal judgments that God brings on this earth as part of his, and and Cam and I were talking about this yesterday, the difference between common grace and saving grace. God in his common grace is pleased to bring about temporal judgment to warn sinners that final judgment is coming. And the first four horsemen of the apocalypse that we looked at back in um, Revelation, um, where was it? Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, and then the first four trumpets in Revelation chapter 8 are pictures of that very thing. Temporal judgment is a picture of full and final judgment that is to come. This is God's common grace to all of humanity, giving space and time to repent. And in the meantime, who is proclaiming the need to repentance to this world? Who does that? Church. Secondly, I want to point out that I believe the picture of the 42 months or the three and a half years. If you're thinking in your mind, well, when is this period of time? The more I study, the more I'm convinced that it is between the ascension of the Lord Jesus when he commissions his disciples in Acts 1-8 to go into all the world and preach the gospel, proclaim Christ when, for how long, until he comes. This short period of time, and this is the encouraging thing to us. We talk about, well, how long is it going to be before the Lord comes? He gives us a picture of a very short, brief period of time. You say, well, it's been 2,000 years. It's not very short. In the context of eternity, is brief. And, and that's why scripture tells us that the time is at hand. Paul says in Romans 13, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So let us cast, cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. If Paul, writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit, says that the time for the Lord Jesus to come back is at hand, was he, was he deceived? Philippians 4, 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. James 5, 8. Mark, you're going to get there. One of these days. One of these days. James 5, 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is what? At hand. First Peter 4, 7. Here was another disciple of the Lord Jesus who obviously did not know what he was talking about. No. First Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is what? At hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. What is he saying? Be led by the Spirit, considering that the end of all things is at hand. And when can the Lord Jesus come back? There is one thing preventing the Lord Jesus from returning, and that is the conversion of his last sheep. In the meantime, the church is to what? Be self-controlled and sober-minded, for the day is at hand. Lastly, the witnesses I want you to see are empowered. They have authority to complete 
their mission. And what is their mission? They have a testimony to give and they will finish their testimony. If you read verse seven, which we did earlier, the church will complete its mission. How do we know? How do we know? How did Zechariah know that the temple would get, get rebuilt? Very simple. God promised. God promised. The church will complete her mission. How? Not by might, not by power that is ours, but by the spirit of God. So what is the application here for the blessing? Jesse, if you'll go to the last slide. I want to remind you again, here's another picture of it. The two witnesses are the prophesying bride of Christ. What is she prophesying about? The mind of God. The Lord wants us to get this truth deep down in our souls. That's why he keeps repeating it. Secondly, God has granted the church or the bride, the power and authority through his regenerating and indwelling spirit to faithfully proclaim the mind of God as the light, as the light, the lampstand, if you will. We do this by what? Keeping in step with the Spirit of God. Thirdly, the church's strength is not readily evident. She will be mocked. She will be ridiculed. She will be looked at as feckless and, and insignificant. And this is the great temptation that the church faces. When the church seems like it is not effective, what do men do? I got to come up with this program or that program. We got to do this. We got to change this up. We got to do that. Despise not the day of small things. Progress may seem slow. We may get discouraged in ministering. But the, the, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ is built one rock at a time. And if you're discouraged this morning and you're tired and you think you're wasting your time, don't be deceived. In, in uh, Zechariah chapter 3, talking about Joshua the high priest, the, the, the scripture says Satan himself opposed Joshua the high priest. Joshua was there to help reestablish the temple after the Babylonian captivity, and he was opposed by Satan. Do you think Satan is opposing the building of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, that's what the picture is, the, the whole book of Revelation is about. Don't be discouraged. God has chosen the foolish and the weak to confound the wise. And then lastly, this, be encouraged by this, God sees and knows his sheep and his bride. We are protected while completing our mission. John chapter 10, verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Lord willing, next week we will look at verses 7 through 10, which is a picture of the church dead in the street. Let's, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these precious reminders of what you're doing. Lord, that we need not be surprised or shocked, but that we understand that you are redeeming for yourself a bride and that you intend to purify it and that you do this through 
the church of the Lord Jesus Christ being submitted and obedient to the spirit of God under intense cultural pressure. Father, we ask that you would give us um, spines of steel and backbones, Father, that will not bend, will not break in the winds of the culture around us, won't give in to pressure, <clears throat> but that we will be faithful to you and that you will be honored and glorified as we reflect your glory by obeying you. We ask for your help with these things. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank mm -hmm. you.